Today's scripture is going to be from Genesis chapter 50. Then Joseph, leaning over his father's face, wept and kissed him. He commanded his servants, who were physicians, to embalm his father. So they embalmed Israel. They took 40 days to complete this, for embalming takes that long, and the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. When the days of mourning were over, Joseph said to Pharaoh's household, If I have found favor with you, please tell Pharaoh that my father made me take an oath, saying, I am about to die. You must bury me there in the tomb that I made for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go and bury my father. Then I will return. So Pharaoh said, Go, and bury your father in keeping with your oath. Then Joseph went to bury his father, and all Pharaoh's servants, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt went with him, along with all Joseph's family, his brothers, and his father's family. Only their dependents, their flocks, their herds, were left in the land of Goshen. Horses and chariots went up with him. It was a very impressive procession. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad, which is across the Jordan, they lamented and wept loudly, and Joseph mourned seven days for his father. When the Canaanite inhabitants of the land saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a solemn mourning on the part of the Egyptians. Therefore, the place is named Abel Mizraim. It is across the Jordan. So Jacob's sons did for him what he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave at Machpelah in the field near Mamre, which Abraham had purchased as burial property from Ephron the Hethrite. After Joseph buried his father, he returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, If Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the suffering we caused him. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before he died, your father gave a command. Say this to Joseph, Please forgive your brother's transgression and their sin, the suffering they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when their message came to him. His brothers also came to him, bowed down before him, and said, We are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good, to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph and his father's family remained in Egypt. Joseph lived 110 years. He saw Ephraim's sons to the third generation. The sons of Manasseh's son, Machir, were recognized by Joseph. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land to the land he swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Joseph made the sons of Israel take an oath, When God comes to your aid, you are to carry my bones up from here. Joseph died at the age of 110. They embalmed him and placed him in a coffin in Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, you tell us uh, in your word that your word is profitable for teaching and correction and instruction and righteousness. And God, we pray that all of those things would be true uh, for us this day. We pray that while we have sung uh, songs about you and to you and we have greeted one another, I pray that you would meet us in your word. God, we know we need comfort, we need correction, we need to be built up. God, we need an enlarged view of you, 
God, let us see your goodness and your holiness together and see how your, your justice and your grace and your mercy kiss in the ways that you love us. God, let us see that today in Jesus' name. Amen. So one thing that we, we, are, we, are, we are actually at the end of our Genesis series. We started this back in January. We've been walking through Genesis for quite some time, and it's been, for me, it's been really rich just because there are stories, again, that we know and we've heard, and yet there are aspects of who God is that shows up new and fresh. And so Genesis has been such a joy to walk through. I hope you found that to be the case. And the way that we're ending this, as we end the story, you know, we talked about this, that Genesis is interesting. So much attention is spent on Joseph, more attention is spent on Joseph than any other character in the Old Testament. There's more chapters devoted to the life of Joseph. And you have to wonder, you have to wonder why. One, one theme that's come up several times in our series is how sometimes we believe things about God that aren't true, and those false beliefs start to inform uh, ways in which we begin to doubt God even ways in which we become fearful of God, not even in a very biblical sense, but almost in the sense that says, a lot of the things that I thought were true about God that clearly are false, those make me really afraid. I'm not sure that I can face God. If I know that God is holy, that's one thing, right? I know God is holy and I know he expects a certain standard, but if I don't know him as gracious and merciful at the same time, then when I know that I'm guilty, I don't think I can face him. Think about this. When you think about God being good, do you feel like you can face a good God when you know you're guilty? I'm not talking about when we, we've, we've made the distinction before, and I'll do it again. There's a distinction between emotional guilt and actual judicial guilt, right? I'm not interested in whether or not you feel guilty. I'm talking about whether or not you actually know you're guilty. You can feel a sense of guilt about something that you haven't maybe crossed any line at all. You just feel a thing. Or sometimes you're waiting to feel in order to know that you're guilty. In either case, that's not the point. The point is, if I can say the same thing about my sin that God does, and God says that this thing is sin, then I know I'm guilty whether I feel it or not. So in those cases where you know that you're guilty, you know that you have, uh, on some level, crossed the line, on some level, not upheld what God has claimed, has, has told us is true. And I know that I've just overlooked that. I know that I've just cast it aside. Can I face God? Do I believe God is still good when I know, when I know that I'm guilty? Sometimes, when we, we're, we're, we're clinging and clamoring for God to be good when we know we're innocent, and there are things that are happening to us that don't feel right, they don't feel fair. And so we're like, God, you're a good God, and I need you to rescue me from this thing that I didn't bring upon myself. But it's a different kind of goodness that we, that we are holding to when we know we're guilty. That's where we find ourselves in this passage. Why do we struggle with believing God is good, faithful and just, even to forgive when we know that we're guilty. I think one of the reasons why we struggle with this, we know it, we'll see it in the passage of scripture and we'll see it's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, amen. But when we're in the midst of knowing that we're guilty, we struggle coming before him, we struggle, we struggle believing he'll still be good to us, why? I suspect that we at different times in our lives, we adhere to an idea of Christian karma and not grace. We, we would never say it, but we function that way. And we even try to quote a scripture as if that's the Christian version of karma. Galatians 7, you reap what you sow. 
We'll say it all the, well, you reap what you sow. That, that, that's just the, the nature of the beast, right? There's this idea that, that karma, this, this idea of, of, of no matter what happens, I will always have consequences coming my way. This idea of inevitable consequences. You get what you deserve. Financial hardship, health issues, relationship struggles. It is always a function of karma. And there's, there's great stories where we can see some of this borne out, right? I have a friend who told a story on social media, and it became so viral that all the different outlets were picking up on it. It was really, it's a guy I grew up with, and he, um, he, he works for a certain company, and he was getting ready to, uh, he was headed to work to do an interview. He's interviewing a potential candidate at his job. And when he was in the parking lot, uh, this woman got out of the car and just started cursing him out, called him everything but a child of God, through some racialized language in there as well. Really, really, uh, really ugly situation. And he gets upstairs to go do this interview, and it's her. And so everybody online is like, karma, 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 you know, karma, that's it. Karma comes back to get you. And here's the thing. There's no question that we see a sense of consequence, right? But here's, here's the question. If we live in a world of karma, how could any of us have any hope? Th think about it. If karma, in its purest form, is truly the way things work, how could any of us have any sense of hope? Because here's what this is saying. This is saying that one-to-one, -one, for every single negative action, negative thought, thing that I do that's wrong, there is an equal and opposite reaction coming my way, period, always. And if that's the case, then, then how could you not always just be walking around your life, looking over your shoulder, waiting for another consequence to drop on you? In other words, karma leaves you hopeless because there's no sense of grace. There's no sense of grace. Like we all get consequences for sure, but I bet everybody in here would say, I've never suffered every consequence for everything I've probably done. And praise be to God, I haven't. Now, if that's the case, if we think about this for a minute, if karma is truly the way things work, then that means everything's got to be meted out at some point. And somehow, even within, true enough, reaping and sowing, there's a sense of God's grace that does not give us all of the consequences we really deserve. Grace means we don't get everything we deserve. And that's a beautiful thing. So this idea, when we start to combine, we combine our understanding of God with karma, and that's always been the case, right? Because this principle of karma, it goes back to some of the oldest religions, obviously, both Hinduism and Buddhism. You see it in Sikhism. You see it in Taoism. And we try to syncretize that in with the gospel, but Christianity has never worked that way. Christianity is never true. I'm talking historic Christianity, not the traditional mess that we make it into. God's economy has never worked that way. God has said, while every other system of religion, every other God functions in that, whatever you do, I have things coming back your way, always. So live along this checklist and hope that you kept all the items right, because if you didn't, all these things are coming your way. And we can be in the church, call, call ourselves Christians, and still function that way, which is why when we know that we're guilty and we're trying to come in a sense of repentance, we still don't believe God will be good enough to forgive us, because we're living in a Christian karmic world and not a truly gospel-centered world. And so while there are certain consequences, if I have to pay them equally for every area that I've fallen short, I'm hopeless. And this is where we find Joseph's brothers at the end of Genesis 50. This is the place where they are. 
They know that they're guilty. We've seen, we've walked through the story. They know all the things that they've done. They've even experienced, you realize that you can even experience God's goodness and still because you remember the weight of your past, you still keep waiting for the other shoe to drop. We, like we don't know how to function in grace. It's just so foreign. So we live with this shame on our back. And so remember, Joseph has just uh, spared his brothers. He saved their people for generations to come. He's brought them from this really despondent place to this wealthy area. Pharaoh has shown love, blessed them throughout. When you look at both, uh, chapters 46 through 49, you see uh, Joseph finally sends his brothers back to get his father and his father and all of his people and all of their land, all of their, their animals and everything they have. They bring it back and Joseph sees his father Jacob for the first time in decades. His father thought he was dead. All of this stuff is there and he's hugging and they're weeping and they're enjoying time and they get years together. And all of this stuff goes on and the brothers, you got to wonder what they're thinking. They see dad and Joseph reconnecting and all of these wonderful things are happening. Joseph has already shown nothing but grace and mercy to his brothers. He's not sought revenge. He's not tried to bring anything else about. He's just given them everything that they could ever ask for and more, showing them nothing but grace and goodness and mercy. And then we come to the end of Jacob's life, Israel. Here Israel is, he's, he's at the end of his life and he's uh, conferring a blessing on all of his children and also consequences and curses for some of them as well, letting them know this is what's going to befall you in many ways because this is the habit of life that you're in that's going to bring these necessary consequences. These are the things that you, that are still a part of you. These are some of the consequences you have to deal with for the things that you've already done. There's some of that for sure. And so they hear this and they see this. And some of the brothers, they get some really good news. Some of them, they get like some really hard news. You know, one is like, hey, you're going to be, uh, you're going to have issues all the time. You had anger issues. One is going to be, you're going to be super, super blessed. And, and all of these wonderful things are really hard things are being told to them. And then his, after his parting words, he dies. Now, when you really think about what these brothers have to be considering, this whole time, Joseph has been showing them nothing but grace. But now they're like, man, dad's dead. There's nothing holding him back. Like, could it be that because of Joseph's love for his father, he didn't seek revenge, but now dad's gone? He can do whatever he wants to us. What's going to happen? Like, they, 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 Joseph showed them some grace and some goodness and, and mercy, but they just don't believe it'll last. In the same way, we do this with God. Like, I, God, you've shown me some areas where you've been incredibly gracious and incredibly merciful, but I just don't think it's going to last. I just feel like that eventually I'm still going to have to go back and pay yet again. And so when you look at uh, verse, when you start at verse 15, ultimately, I want us to focus on verses 15 through 19, because this is where you see not only uh, the, the brothers who are stuck in this kind of karmic way of thinking, this way of thinking, we've got consequences coming our way. And ultimately, Joseph has been good and he's been kind, but I don't think he'll stay that way because they know how they would probably function. You see, because a lot of times we cast God as someone who functions the way we do. If, if I wouldn't give you that much grace, I don't think God will either. And since I know what I'm prone to do to you, I just assume what's coming my way too. So you've got these brothers functioning like we would probably function. Dad's gone. 
What's going to happen? What's coming my way? Look at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, if Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the suffering we caused him. That's a logical assumption. Most human beings would function like that. There are some people, there are some people who are really good at sitting and stewing and holding on for a long time, waiting for that perfect moment to bring revenge. Just waiting. You know how you know? Because when there's been something you've been holding to for a really, really long time, and then the argument, argument happens like a year later, and you've been waiting to let this thing out. This is just like when you did blah, 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 blah. Then you have this wonderful dissertation. You know why? Because you've been rehearsing it for a really, really, really long time. And you just levy it and you lay it down and you've been waiting all this time just to do it. Why? Because your goodness, you were good for a little while, but you were good just until you could get that just sweet revenge. And so they, they're kind of thinking, okay, well, Joseph is getting ready to bring, bring the real fire now because dad is gone. And we have this coming to us. We know how guilty we are. And you get to verse 16, he says, so they sent this message to Joseph. Before he died, your father gave a command. I think they, they're lying. All right, they're lying. Most commentators actually agree that this is likely something that didn't actually happen, but they're so afraid, and you can understand why, they're going, think about it. We know that if he ends up going off on us, he's only been withholding his wrath because of dad. But if we can still appeal to dad in front of him, then maybe he won't actually bring swift justice to us. Hey, by the way, you know that dad that you love so much? Yeah, I mean, I know he's gone, but his spirit lives on. <laughs> and here's how you can honor his memory, by not bringing swift justice to us. Before, uh, you you died, before he died, your, your father gave a command. Say this to Joseph. I could just hear them like mocking their dad. Say this to Joseph. Please forgive your brother's transgression and their sin, the suffering they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. There, there is so much like we got to do what we can to still look out for ourselves. And they're so focused on, because they know how to manipulate the situation. We know you have a soft spot for dad, and so we have to protect ourselves. We're going to do what we've done before. We've been really good at deceiving. We've been really good at lying. Even after you've shown us nothing but kindness, nothing but goodness, nothing but grace, we still are going to have to find a way to manipulate the situation to make sure we're safe. One commentator says, the manner of telling uh, the story strongly suggests that the message in Jacob's name is actually fictitious. It was this, surely together with the arm's length approach, telling its own tale of fear and mistrust that moved Joseph to tears. You see, Joseph is seeing through the story. Joseph's been spending years with his dad by now. So if anything, his own father would have said that to him. Hey, listen, I'm getting ready to die. We see the, the words that you can actually look back and see the words that, uh, uh, that Jacob actually gave to Joseph right before he died. When, right before he died, because he's actually giving everybody all their marching orders, and when he starts talking to Joseph, none of the things that he tells Joseph have anything to do with, oh, and by the way, take it easy on your brothers. He actually doesn't say that. He actually just kind of gives them nothing but blessing, tells them all the wonderful things that's happening, promising that there's going to be a deliverer basically coming through the line of Judah, all these wonderful things that are coming. He doesn't say anything to Joseph about, hey, by the way, take it easy on your brother. So if any time, that, that would be the time. Like Joseph would be like, he easily could have said, y'all lying, and I know it because I've been talking to daddy all this time, but he doesn't. He's moved to tears. Why? He's not just moved to tears because they brought up dad. He's moved to tears because he realizes my brothers still don't understand the concept of goodness and grace. They don't get it. They're fearing me because they're, they're actually thinking that revenge is coming. 
they, they are acknowledging just how guilty they are, and they know they deserve it, but they still are not overwhelmed by the goodness and the grace of, that God's shown me and that I get to show them. And he's moved to tears. He's moved to tears because he sees they don't trust me, and they feel like they have to manipulate me in order to ensure that I'll show kindness to them. That can be heartbreaking when you are trying to build relationship with anyone. You don't want to feel like that they're having to manipulate you in order to be good to them. That's actually not a healthy relationship. You would hate to think that someone's having to plot and plan and, and find ways around just being good, that they would have to manipulate you in order to do that. And he's broken. He's broken by that. He's pushed to the point of tears. And so after he cries and he weeps, then you see his response. I think this is where you see this goodness of Joseph, this idea that Joseph is not trying to bring revenge, and he's so overwhelmed by the fact that they still don't understand goodness and grace yet. And in his response, he said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore... Don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them, and he spoke kindly to them. I think it, when, you, when you see some of the pictures that's, that's drawn here, when you, when you notice just how sweet and kind Joseph responds to their fear. Jo Joseph basically is reminding them, number one, I'm not God. That's a big statement there. Basically, he's saying, it's not my place to levy punishment against you. We said this before. We say it all the time. This is a perfect picture of what forgiveness is. Forgiveness says, I renounce my right for revenge against you. It's not for me. We see that in the New Testament, right? What God says about revenge, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. Think about this. God says, I make it my business to bring vengeance. It's never your job. It's never your job to plot it. It's never your job to plan for it. It's never your job to go and advocate in that way. I'm getting my revenge. And Joseph gets that way back here. Hey, I'm not getting ready to bring vengeance against you. Am I God? No. And then he moves, when he, when he, when he says this next thing, I think it's, it's so incredible because he's looking at them and he sees how afraid they are. He sees what they deserve. And he says, don't be afraid. How can he... How in the world can he tell them? He's got the power of Egypt behind him. And they're saying, don't be afraid. And then he bases it on what we talked about last week. He bases it in, listen, God has done all of these amazing things through what happened. In other words, even though you did these horrible things and you meant really evil things for me, look at all of the good God chose to do through it. In his mind, he's saying, you need to understand you don't need karma right now. You need grace. He's saying, I'm not going to operate in karma right now. I'm going to operate in grace. This is where what we truly believe, it really gets put on the scene when bad things start to happen, either if we're the offender or the offended. Both of us have to choose the way of grace. Both of us have to choose the way of grace. Either A, I walk like I know that I'm forgiven and I don't keep looking over my shoulder waiting for the other shoe to drop, or I don't keep waiting for an opportunity to bring the shoe on. I'm constantly moving in a place of how do I move in rhythms of grace and not rhythms of karma? 
Because ultimately, if you're moving in rhythms of karma, it doesn't always work out that way. And then you start seeing, it doesn't seem fair. That's why we'll say that. Life's not fair. Why? Because everyone should get their just desserts. I had things happen to me. They haven't had anything happen to them. God is unjust. Because we still think that it's only this karmic way of thinking. And yet, we see the scripture says that God's grace reigns on the just and the unjust. You don't know or have any idea how God is bringing good about anything. I just, I, the only way I can judge God, I can only judge God by karma, even though I desperately need grace. We don't need karma. We need grace. There's an old, uh, there's a phrase in the Bible that you hear often uh, that, 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 uh, transitions from any given situation to an act of God. It's this inspiring read as a Christian, this phrase. Uh, you've heard it many times. It's the phrase, but God. But God is the most grace-filled phrase you find in the scriptures. It's the most anti-karma phrase in the scripture. Because ultimately, karma would just mean because you. But grace says, but God. Karma says, because you did X, Y, and Z, here's what's coming to you. Grace says, in spite of what you did, but God. This is the hardest thing for us to hold on to and remember. Because look, we don't function like this with each other. We're humans. We struggle, right? It's so hard to, to believe that there's a God that functions in this place of, in spite of what happens, but God. There are times in our lives when the intentions of some folks toward us are not good, and there are other things concerning us that, that we know we're so undeserving. And then you've got this phrase that changes the dynamics of it all. But God, I know what I deserve, yet God did this. Look at Genesis 50, 20. Joseph said unto his brethren, you meant what you meant for evil, God meant for good. But God meant for good. Where would we be if it had not been for God standing on our defense? This is, this is what it means when you start thinking about, if we only think karma, there is no advocate. There's no need for an advocate because all you get are consequences. If we just function in, well, you know, I just hope that my good outweighs my bad because that way there's more good things coming my way than bad things. That's not grace. That's not gospel. And actually, that becomes a form of its own slavery because now you're enslaved to tracking how many good things you've done so that you can bring that up whenever the bad things come. And so you look at this, this picture of, 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 of grace that Joseph is showing, and he's embodying, and he's actually giving us a picture of God's grace. Think about several of the places in Scripture where you see the but God showing up. Acts 7, 9, Stephen's speaking on this matter, and he said the patriarchs moved with envy when they sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. Genesis 31.5, we find God standing on, on J Jacob's behalf, even in all of Jacob's deceptions, keeping him from unnecessary hurt, this but God moment. You see in the same way in 1 Samuel 23, it says that Saul sought David's life, but God delivered him into the land, into his hand. 2 Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat was told the battle was not his, but God's, but the Lord's. Over and over again, in spite of what's happening here, but God, 1 Corinthians 10, but God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above all that you are able. We need grace more than we need karma. We need grace more than we need inevitable consequences. And if we don't get this, here's the thing. We never learn how to function with each other 
We never learn the rhythms of repentance and reconciliation. Let me tell you, you know the reason why we actually struggle a lot of times to repent? It is our pride, for sure, because sometimes we don't want to see ourselves as guilty. We don't want to see ourselves as bad. We choose to see ourselves as good all the time. That's one huge part of repentance, for sure. The other part is, okay, I do see myself as this way, but once I repent and I give you that power, I think you're just going to lord it over me all my life, and I'll never be able to be back in good standing again, because I just don't know that you'll ever be able to show goodness to me again. That's another thing. We actually struggle with that. So that's why we're supposed to, in order to be able to reconcile well, we need to be able to appeal to grace on both ends. How do I appeal to grace as the one who's been offended? And how do I appeal to grace as the one who has been the offender? That's the only way repentance and reconciliation work. It's the only way. If I'm just afraid, a lot of times the reason why we struggle with even telling the whole truth on the thing is because we're so afraid of what's getting ready to come. And so we just won't, even, if we're so, even though we know, even though the scriptures show us that type of transparency is how you engender safety and engender trust and build relationship, I just don't have enough belief in like, the goodness coming from you that I just have to hold some things back. So I'm not able to repent well, nor am I able to reconcile well. We need grace more than karma. I'll close with this. There was a, uh, a book that was written uh, uh, back in, in 2005, and it's a conversation that was done between Bono and this journalist, Mishka Asayas. And uh, in this, it's this, this conversation went on for several years. So Bono, the lead singer of U2, uh, is, is going through his life for years with this journalist back and forth. And they collected their interviews into a book form. And in the book, it's, it's really interesting because he's talking about his upbringing. He's talking about how the band got started. He's talking about what it meant to be a celebrity and some of the trappings of being a celebrity. And then he talks about his faith. And in his discussion about what faith meant to him, and he's, he's, he's obviously an, uh, an avowed Christian, and he talks about his Christian faith a good deal. And as he was talking about it, he said this. He talked about the goodness of God. And he said... I would be in big trouble if karma was going to finally be my judge. I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross. This is the only thing he's actually clinging to. One of the most well-known singers in the world going, I'm going to tell you right now, if karma is it, I have no hope. I can only hope in the gospel, in the grace of Jesus taking my sins on the cross. God is good because he does not give us what we deserve. God is good because he doesn't give us what we deserve. If we think of him any other way, we have no idea how to approach him when we know we're guilty. He gives us grace instead. Listen, if we don't get anything else from our faith, we've got to understand, A, I'm fully aware of what I really probably deserve. I'm fully aware of the ways in which I've crossed the line. I'm fully aware of the ways in which I've missed the mark. And if this idea of karma, you get what you put out there and whatever the, you put out into the universe, it comes right back to you. I have zero hope in any joy coming forward. When I know that, that is the only thing that makes grace incredibly amazing. The fact that out of everything that I deserve, I don't get the punishment. I don't get the retribution. I don't get the reprisal. I actually get redemption. 
I get reprieve. I get release. I actually get safety. I get relationship. I get love. And if I'm overwhelmed with that, then whenever I'm the offender, that's where I go. Whenever I'm the offended, that's where I go. I've been done wrong. Okay, how do I engage this? What does repentance look like for them? Okay, once those things have happened, how do I release my right for revenge so that I don't meet them eye for an eye? If I'm the offender, I realize I've wounded them and a holy God, and I'm reminded of all the ways that God is faithful and just to forgive me. So I ultimately, listen, some of you, you're in situations where maybe you've been the offender, and that person has just not been able to either forgive you or to be able to build real relationship again. You can't rest even in their ability to forgive you. You've got to know that God is still standing there offering you forgiveness. You've got to know, I actually can't just function in the goodness of another person. I can only function in the goodness of a loving God. And pray and hope that God works on the hearts of other people. But I can't control that. This is where we are. So if we understand this, then we realize, God, you're good. Because you don't give me what I deserve. You give me grace instead. And if anything else, I hope we all can say, in any situation, whether I'm the offender or the offended, I choose grace. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for um, the fact that, God, you don't tone down your holiness. You don't tone down who you are as a holy God. You don't tone down your standard for perfection. But, God, you build up and you speak up and you tone up all the ways in which you bring grace to meet the gap. Your grace, the way that you give us what we don't deserve and don't give us what we do deserve, God, I pray that we are overwhelmed by just how amazing that is. God, I pray that this would inform the way that we forgive. I pray that it would inform the way that we repent. I pray that it would inform the way that we reconcile. God, I'm sure that all of us have different places in our hearts and in our lives where we just are not appropriating grace well at all. We're not applying it to ourselves. We're not applying it to our neighbors. We're not applying it to our family. And God, I pray that you would give us a deep brokenness in our hearts for all the ways that that's not true. God, I pray that you would then do the work of undoing and reworking our heart to, to beat the way yours does, to break for the things that break yours, that we would begin to, to be so overwhelmed by this idea of grace that all we want to do is walk in those rhythms. And God, I pray against any ideas of karma that we have in our head. I pray that we would push that out. I pray that we would definitely understand consequence and cause and effect, but God, that we would understand too that you meet us even in the midst of consequences that should come. Ultimately, the ultimate consequence of being separated from you, you've always stepped in the gap. You continue to do it over and over and over again. Those mercies are new every morning. God, I pray that we would cast out any ideas of this combination of the gospel and karma and all we see is grace. And God, I pray that we would do this not only for us to be well, but God, I pray that we would do this so that we can live that out and manifest that for people around us. God, I pray that there would be those who may not understand grace, see the way that we function and be so, so overwhelmed by just how outlandish and dare I say scandalous the idea of grace really is. God, I pray that that would be what overwhelms people's hearts, not our ability to be persuasive, not our ability to be the most logical, not our ability to be the most talented, but our ability to be the most broken by your grace and your mercy. And we pray that now in Jesus' name, amen. As we come to this table, 
this table really is the embodiment of what, what we just said and what we've been uh, speaking through Genesis over the last eight months. When we're coming to this table, what we're ultimately saying is, I choose grace because God chose me. I have no other way of functioning other than grace. That means when I come, I don't come as somebody who just earned this or I'm coming because I know I deserve this. I'm actually coming because I know I never deserve this. I'm coming because in the midst of me being undeserving, Jesus still came. He still came and died in my place for the real punishment that I actually deserved. He came in my place, lived this life perfectly, offered himself a perfect sacrifice on my behalf. And then to prove that he's going to finish what he started, not only did he die, but he rose again with all power. And in the same way that he rose, we trust that we will rise. And in the same way that he rose, he's promising to come again and make all things that have been broken right again. The thing I'm so looking forward to when Jesus returns is that I'll never have to question goodness again. I'll never have to wonder, God, are you really going to be good and forgiving and merciful here? I'll never have to find ways to do self-justifying things to prove to myself that I must be good enough in God's eyes. We get to be done with all of that. We get to be done with this constant questioning of, God, are you really there? Do you really love me? Are you still forgiving me? But what about this? Are you still doing this in me? Am I not good enough? What else do I need to do? We don't have to do that anymore. So, so when you come, this table is for those who fundamentally understand there's nothing within me on my own that makes me worthy of this table. But there's everything within who Jesus is that has called me worthy, that has rendered me worthy. If that's true for you, if that's where your trust is, not in yourself, not in your version of holiness, not in all the ways that you've kept the rules, not in all the things that you've abstained from doing. If your true trust is, my trust is only in grace, the grace of Jesus. What, he, what God has offered us in Christ is my greatest hope. It's the only thing I trust in. Then this is your table. If not, if you're in a different spot, if you're just, you know, I, I don't know if this is actually true for me. It sounds good, but there's a lot of other things I trust in as well. And frankly, I feel like I can control my environment better thinking along karmic lines than this idea of God being good, God being in control. Then let this time pass. Don't come and take this unworthily. And this is not because, well, you're not in the club so you can't make it. Ultimately, Jesus wants to meet you exactly where you are. He wants to meet you in a place of, of, of whatever doubt that you have so that he can impress upon you this idea of true grace, this idea of true mercy. And hopefully, as you are overwhelmed by that, that you can come and take, partake as a member of the family of God, possibly for the first time. As our volunteers come forth, we want to remind you that we do communion by the process of intention. And so what you'll do is you'll walk down the middle aisle, take a piece of gluten-free bread and dip it in wine or juice as you see fit. On the night that Christ was betrayed, Jesus gave thanks for the Passover meal. And he picked up the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat of it. And in the same manner, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is, this is my blood. The blood of a new covenant. Blood poured out for the remission of sins. Take and drink of it and do this in remembrance of me. Here's what Paul tells us. He says that every time we engage in this, 
Every time we partake in this act of communion, there's something happening here. This isn't just something that we are just passively receiving. We are engaging in this. He actually says every time we do this, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. So there's this incredible place where through the mystical nature of God's grace, we are meeting him at the very place where grace is dispensed. We are meeting him. He is reminding us of who he is, and we are proclaiming who he is every time we do this. And so if this is what's true for you, if this is where your greatest hope is, if this is, regardless of whether you've been offender or offended, if this is where you find your hope, not in your efforts, but in Christ's effort, in his finished work, if this is what you trust in, if this is what you lean on, if this is the only thing in which you place your hope, then come, proclaim, be reminded, taste and see that our Lord Jesus is indeed good. Let's eat together.